Hi and welcome back for another episode of Esido Podcast, the second one uh, with the video. Um, I hope you liked the first one. And um, yeah, f from here on now, I, I actually start enjoying it uh, right from the start. So um, yeah, you can expect more, more videos to come. Um, my name is Emre Schentürk, founder of Esido Magazine, online magazine where you can read, um, my opinion, very interesting articles on political analysis societal developments and so on and so forth not very descriptive um, rather um, explorative and often also explanatory so i'll put the link down below you'll find it always there acido.com so you can also read a lot of articles today's episode is going to be about china um, china particularly interesting country because it is the most um, um, yeah, the biggest country in terms of population it's the second biggest country in terms of uh, economic volume so yeah very interesting country but we know very little about it if we um, think about uh, the transparency issue that this this political system has nonetheless um, whatever reaches us from from china is uh, in the in the fewest cases uh, positive um, especially in Western media, but it is not only confined to Western media, but whenever something happens in China or the news reaches, it's negative, right? Most prominently, the ongoing genocide on the U Uyghur people in the province of East Turkestan. So this has been going on for quite some time. It's very atrocious. We know very little about uh, what they are doing and how they are engaging in ethnic cleansing. So they're trying to wipe out this whole ethnicity um, through violent means, but also through uh, psychological warfare. Incredibly uh, horrible and disgusting what is going on there. And actually, I think a year ago, yeah, somewhat a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I wrote an article about the situation there and how to actually end it. Um, instead of, and as I said before, it's not very descriptive what I do, um, instead of summarizing what has been going on there, I try to post solutions and give you some kind of guide to, to, to think about these things in terms of how can we tackle it. Um, I did it, it's called How to End the Genocide, Link is also down below to the article. Very interesting. I will fully recommend uh, you to read it. And um, yeah, definitely um, worth the time. But today is not. Uh, today I'm not going to discuss the genocide issue in China. Um, also not the COVID restrictions or the political regime altogether. Um, rather I want to focus on the financial system in China because it is very, very interesting what is going on there. And um, the reason for that is that China has a very long-lasting history of societal growth that was tied to economic conditions. So whenever you look at China's great times and, and great periods and dynasties they had, it was also it was always connected or based and grounded in um, based on and grounded in economic policies 
and economic strategies that were highly ef uh, efficient and also effective, obviously. Now you might also uh, argue and say, okay, well, is that, isn't that the case with all countries? But uh, this is actually not the case. We have numerous, we have numerous uh, occasions of uh, or historic examples of countries that have reached a societal level um, without the, the yeah, correlating economic success or at least uh, using it as a, as a basis. We can think about the Incas, the Mayas, the Aztecs. Um, economics was not very um, yeah, central to, to their development, but they developed into, into great civilizations. Um, they didn't have much trade and stuff, so they still managed it, you know, to just focus on their culture and develop their civilizations from domestic means, you know, some kind of, we can we can even say it's some some sort of cultural uh, mercantilism that they applied and it was highly efficient. We can think about today's countries as well. We can think about the Scandinavian countries, uh, amazing living standard. Uh, they're doing great. Obviously, uh, and pretty much it's based on education um, rather than uh, yeah, extensive trade. Um, even if we think about Norway not being in the European Union, uh, being kind of autonomous, uh, still still managed to, to uh, reach a societal level and sustain it. But without you know, moving too much um, into, into other directions, maybe let just one last example is, for example, the Turkic societies, they had flourishing economic uh, periods, but mostly growth in Turkic countries was uh, driven by military expansion. So a different core driver of growth. China has always been uh, driven by economic growth. It has always been the cornerstone of their societal development. And this is going to stay forever. So whenever the economy is great, China is going to do well and vice versa. Now, interestingly, there has been a break or kind of a rift between the global financial system and China's financial system in the 1970s when the world started to abandon the Bretton Woods system. The Bretton Woods system was the US dollar tied to the gold price. And the reason behind it is that there is a concept called the impossible trinity. So we have autonomous uh, monetary policy on the one hand, fixed exchange rate regime on the other hand, and there's a third variable and it is called international capital flows. All three of them individually seen are very desirable aspects of economic policy, but they cannot exist together. And this is very important. This is a very crucial point in economic and monetary policy because they cannot exist together. Everybody wants to have autonomous, uh, yeah, or full autonomy about their, their monetary system, right? Why, why would a country not want to um, say or you know, determine how the monetary system is going to be, whether hawkish, dovish, whatever, right? How the interest rates and the whole design of the financial system is actually built upon why wouldn't they want it? Obviously, they want to be autonomous. This is what yeah, states uh, why they are sovereign. Um, so we can use this pretty much as a fixed thing. You know, Only if you use the currency of another country, you practically abandon it because they dictate your monetary policy by their um, 
by their own monetary policy because you use their currency, right? Without, um, you know, putting a too much um, focus on that because most countries, you know, usually use this autonomous uh, monetary policy, I want to concentrate on the other two aspects. The other one was the fixed exchange rate regime. And every country wants to have that actually because it gives you some kind of a, rela a reliability, it gives you stability. The trade relations are much easier when you have fixed exchange rates and actually can um, rely on yeah, certain quotas or certain movements that are going to occur or in this case are not going to occur. Meaning that, for example, um, if you have a very weak currency um, or like a volatile currency, you're exposed to great risks. We can see that in Turkey, for example, where the currency has lost, I think, over 70 or 80 percent uh, of its value um, within the last years or even more um, against the US dollar and uh, the euro. And what happened is that because it was a very import or, or is a very import focused economy, the prices went up incredibly. So uh, we have an economic crisis in Turkey just because of this exchange rate regime. This is why ex fixed exchange rates are actually desirable and positive. But there's another thing, international capital flows. In the globalized financial system as we have today, because we have the internet, you can move uh, everywhere, you can travel, um, you can sit at your desk, order something from around the world and stuff. Meaning that international capital flows cannot be that easily controlled anymore. But when you have so much capital flow or coming into your country or leaving your country actually, you cannot sustain this exchange rate. And when you, when you cannot sustain the exchange rate, there is no reason or there's, there's not the possibility of holding on to it, right? So back then when the US dollar was tied to the gold price, you could do it and the world was not globalized enough in order to, to become... Um, or to make this the system unsustainable. But um, once we entered the 70s, you know, it was time to kind of abandon it, and they did it. So this Bretton Woods system was abandoned. But China didn't do it. China, as uh, a trade-oriented country or a trade-oriented economy, wanted to retain this, uh, this fixed exchange rate, what they did. So they kept the exchange rate, kept their uh, autonomous monetary policy, but guess what? What did they uh, did they have to do? Obviously, they had to abandon the or close the capital borders, right? So otherwise, they couldn't uh, keep up the exchange rate. Ever since, or I mean, whatever, not, not really ever since, but uh, yeah, for for the last 40, 50 years, China has been um, a very closed economy. A close country uh, even before that but before that obviously it was not very relevant to the world uh, economy and to the to the global happenings uh, within the economic realm so they kept um, closing the borders controlling what capital is coming in and what capital uh, capital is, is is flowing out of the country so far so good but as the second biggest country or second biggest uh, economy in the world it is very difficult to, to control uh, who is bringing money into the country and uh, who is, who is um, yeah, where the outflows of money are within that country. 
Therefore, they have a very specific system. And this system is based on separating Hong Kong's financial system or the, the area of, of financial happenings from the mainland China. So they have three stock exchanges, one in Hong Kong, two in mainland China. The two uh, in mainland China are Shenzhen and Shanghai. So what they do is the following. Companies that are incorporated in China can have up to three share classes. They, uh, those in mainland China that are solely incorporated there uh, have the so-called A shares, which are uh, solely obtainable for Chinese citizens, uh, Chinese nationals, and no one else. So you as a foreigner cannot hold A shares. It's not possible. And it's just within China. Then there are so-called B shares, meaning that those companies who have uh, stocks listed in foreign exchanges such as NASDAQ, uh, New York Stock Exchange, London Stock, Stock Exchange, or whatever, are called B shares. So foreigners can hold them and they can be traded, right? Third, there are so-called H shares. And these are in Hong Kong dollar denominated shares from the very same company which has also kind of uh, shares pooled within the Hong Kong financial system. So if you invest into a Chinese company through B or H shares, which are the only options you have, the company within itself and within its um, share system is converting those through a controlled mechanism into capital within mainland China. So this is how they get money into the country while you can still invest in it, right? And the same also with the outflow. So the inflow of money is also uh, matched with a, with a specific outflow of money. So they can basically uh, control or level it out and keep the, uh, the exchange rate um, some kind of balanced. The exchange rate regime or keeping it up, the capital controls and stuff, is also the reason why China forbid all kinds of uh, crypto mining, crypto trading, crypto investing um, last year. And uh, because this is a very decentral method of um, trading and also uh, conducting uh, monetary exchanges, so they cannot control it. This is why they said, okay, no, it's, um, it's enough, you know, we don't need this kind of stuff in this financial system. So anyways, as you can see, uh, Hong Kong has a very central uh, role within the financial system because it actually serves as the gatekeeper of uh, for capital um, into mainland China. But the problem is China is not able to efficiently hold up its ex exchange rate regime. The yuan is losing value over the last couple of years. It has been uh, under very much pressure it becomes increasingly difficult with all the internet possibilities, the, the web um, applications, uh, the, different, the different companies that, that try to get into China to control it and to contain it. So China, and this is what I'm saying for, for the last couple of years, I have been always saying this, and this is why it's also important for me to have this on record, China is going to open up its capital borders within the next three to eight years. It is a bit kind of kind of a vague uh, time frame, I admit, but um, it is also very difficult, you know, to to make like very pointy um, 
or very um, on-point assessments all the time, but I'm 100% sure that they're going to do it. And there are very interesting uh, developments because um, the French bank BNP Paribas and um, the North American uh, investment fund BlackRock are the first actors who, with and without joint venture, are financial actors within China. And uh, they have, they can, as the first foreigners, offer financial services um, and lending um, opportunities and instruments within China to domestic to the domestic economy, obviously with supervision. But they are the first foreigners to do so. And I mean, this is very interesting because if you th look around your country, wherever you are, you'll definitely find uh, a foreign bank, right? you find something like Goldman Sachs or you find some BMP, ING, uh, Deutsche Bank is very big. All the all, all sorts of banks, Santander, the, the Spanish Spanish bank. So all sorts of banks and uh, credit institutions are uh, available in your country if you're not doing in China, obviously. But um, within China, this is just in the, in the last couple of years. And within this year, uh, these two actors were able to to enter the financial market there. Um, but this is kind of a weak argument to say that they're going to open up the capital borders. There are two other developments that are more significant. The first one is something that happened like a couple of days ago. So they ordered somewhat thousand companies to transfer their shares from Hong Kong to mainland China. But because they're foreign investors and people still want to invest in those countries, uh, countries, I say, companies, the access to those companies is going to be opened up so that you can also invest into the Shanghai and Shenzhen uh, denominated shares, obviously within a certain share regime, but into those companies. Um, this has been just announced a couple of days ago, so uh, it's very recent. Um, it does not mean that there's a free flow of capital and that you can just freely invest in them, but it is some kind of you know controlled and balanced out. However, it is a big leap forward. Another development, and this has been also going on for, for some years, and you might have followed it, uh, are the unrests in, in Hong Kong. So there have been a lot of protests, there have been rigged elections, there have been violent um, demonstrations, and so on and so forth. And Western media always said, okay, the Hong Kong people, they want aut uh, autonomy, they want to um, have their own government, they want to be free and stuff. Um, but this is actually not the case. This is not what's going on there. Obviously, Hong Kong is going to be incorporated into mainland China. There's no doubt about it. And maybe the people, they want it. But the reason behind it is, is not that they just want to hold on to the power, but they want to, uh, or the Chinese government, government wants to actually grasp the power on the financial system. They want to incorporate it into mainland China and uh, in an attempt to open up the capital borders. For years now, companies have been transferring more and more of their shares from this H and A share regime into the A share regime. And their, their accounts and uh, track records of companies doing so. So it is not just a matter of... Um, yeah, we want freedom and democracy and all that. No, that's not the case. We have a, a very huge financial component here. The people of Hong Kong know it. This is what made them rich. This is what made the city rich. And there's no guarantee that they're going to be rich in the future. 
because they already have two very uh, strong domestic stock exchanges, right? Accordingly, this is going to be a central element. In my opinion, um, the capital borders are going to be opened. But another very important aspect of the Chinese economy in order to do so is the following. When you open your capital borders to the world and they can invest in your companies, they're naturally going to be very, very suspicious in the beginning because they don't know the culture there, they don't know how the companies act, they don't know what the basis is, how are the financials, can we trust the reporting standards, can we trust uh, the auditors, and so on and so forth. So lots of uncertainty there. And this is why China has been cracking down on mostly tech companies for the last two years. There have been many investigations, extremely high fines, extremely, um, yeah, extremely harsh punishments of executives. There have been a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of imprisonments of, of business people in the last couple of years, most prominently uh, within the companies of Alibaba, Tencent, JD. The reason for that is not because China wants to kind of punish them and or the Chinese government wants to punish them and just show or flex muscles and say, uh, yeah, we have, a, we have a tight grip on you. No, that's not the reason. The reason for that is they want to impose rules and protectional measures and create a legal system around those companies which have been corrupt for years so that when they open up the capital borders, the companies are ready, they are waterproof. The foreign investors cannot come and say, well, you are a cor corrupt company because this and this and this is happening. They can say it happened and they say, okay, well, this is the record, of course it happened, but now the legal system is strong enough to make those companies bulletproof. Data protection, they have been increasing uh, incredibly um, protective measures in terms of data privacy, also of foreigners and foreign data. You don't even have those standards elsewhere in the world. They are so strict and so forward-thinking, right? So they're doing it with an iron hand, and it apparently uh, is viewed in the West as something um, uh, very bad, obviously due to the cultural differences and stuff. But in my opinion, the, the motive behind it is something yeah, very progressive in terms of the, the, the Chinese uh, development aspirations. And that is making those companies actually work within the financial system or the global financial system, right? So summing up, um, I think China is going to be an increasingly import, uh, important actor within the global economy. They are also producing or uh, more inno uh, innovative stuff uh, themselves um, rather than copying everything. So this is one factor. Another factor, as I said, they're going to open up the capital borders. You can see it with the developments going on in Hong Kong, which is increasingly uh, being incorporated into mainland China. You can see it um, with the first uh, developments in the banking system as well as uh, corporations with other uh, other companies, foreign companies, and you can also see it how they treat their own companies and try to get them ready to compete on the global market. So I think we will see uh, a very interesting economic development there. Uh, obviously, there there will be political problems um, as well as societal problems, as you can see right now in China as well. 
But just from the economic perspective, I think it's going to be a very interesting um, development. And I'm very interested how it turns out. And obviously, I'm also very interested in uh, yeah, how my assessment uh, turns out and whether I'm right with my um, prediction that in the next uh, three to, to eight years, China is going to open up the capital borders. Um, yeah, it is... Um, very it is going to be a very interesting um development to to, to keep an eye on um and obviously i will uh, keep you updated but uh, for now i hope that you enjoyed the yeah the discussion uh, the insights and also um, my assessment on these kind of things i had some china articles as well on sc.com uh, next to the one about the uh, the genocide and how to stop it so i'm um, yeah i hope uh, that you also engage with the written content on the web page and what i would really um, encourage you to do or what i would really love is um, if you just engage in, in a discussion with me just drop a comment uh, let me know what you what you think about my assessment um, it's always very interesting to to enter those discussions and exchange the views on these kind of things and what you think about my analysis. Um, as I said, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for for tuning in, and um, yeah, see you next time around for another episode of the Podcast. So take care. Bye.